As we are about to enter into our communion time, I'd like to ask a favor of you. For just a moment, I'd ask that you just please close your eyes and just let your mind, your heart, and your spirit take you back to Calvary. Let us just imagine that we're there among the crowd, that we have witnessed all of the cruelty that our Savior endured for for our behalf. And then, as it ended, as Jesus' life, life breath was ending, you hear the, the words that are coming through the crowds. He is dead. He is dead. Can you imagine the feeling of the disciples as they had witnessed his ministry and had watched him die a cruel death? I'm sure that their thoughts are very similar to thoughts we have experienced. Now what? What lies ahead? What will we do? The wonderful thing is God's plan had not been completed at this time. The next huge event that took place three days later was another wonderful statement that just penetrated through the entire region. And that statement was, He is risen. He is risen. This is the basis of our hope and faith. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless, and your faith is useless. And if Christ has not been raised, and your faith is useless, and you are still guilty of your sins. This communion that we have before us is a memorial. It's a reminder that Jesus himself established for us that our king was victorious over death and over sin. We're also able to commune with God through, the, through our hope and our faith in Jesus. In Romans, Paul penned in the 8th chapter, we were given this hope when we were saved. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we, are looking, if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we must wait patiently and confidently. And the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we do not know what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. And the Father who knows all hearts knows what the Spirit is saying. For the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. This same hope and faith will bring eternal life. In Titus, the third chapter, Paul says, When God our Savior revealed His kindness and His love, He saved us, not because of the righteous things that we had done, but because of His mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us new birth and a new life through the Holy Spirit. 
He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ our Savior. Because of His grace, because of His grace, He made us right in His sight and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. Will you pray with me, please? Holy Father, I am so thankful for this memorial feast that is set before us. Father, you knew exactly how we would react. And you have promised us that you would not forsake us. And in the privilege and the opportunity that we have now, Father, to participate in this memorial feast, I ask that you just help us to set aside all of the cares and thoughts of this, this past week and those things we are stressed about for next week and just allow us to commune with you, Father, to allow us to let you take control of our lives. Holy Father, we love you and we just are, are so grateful for your sacrifice and the Lord Jesus and the fact that you have given us your spirit to help us through this world. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.
I'm getting out of darkness. My light shines on. Yeah, I'm heading out of darkness. My light shines on. I'm getting out of darkness. My light shines on. to another portion of our worship, and that is our giving. The entire Christian life is one of giving. Jesus is our example in this. He loved us and He gave His life for us. Therefore, we should show our love for Him by giving to support His cause, His kingdom work. Here at Living Stones Church, we have been called to this community. The commission that of our calling requires us to give of our time, to give of our talents, and also to give of our finances. When we give in faith out of a commitment to Christ and a love for His people in this community, then certainly there will be great things that come from our gift. Let us pray. Holy Father, we are indeed grateful for all of the blessings that you have provided for us. So often, Father, we overlook these blessings because we expect them in our lives. And for that, we say we are terribly sorry, Father. We know that you are the giver of all the good and perfect gifts that you have bestowed upon us. And now, Father, I ask that you just bless this time for our contribution, that you would just please uh, take the burden off of us and the worries of this world so that we can give freely. And we just pray that the monies that are taken up will go to your kingdom work in this community. We ask all of this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. <clears throat> I don't think we plan to have the Withholding Nothing song playing during <laughs> offering. <clears throat> that must mean it's the spirit, I don't know. Good morning, everybody. 
It's officially fall. Got my pumpkin spice deodorant out this morning, so. As a joke, don't come up and smell me afterward. So uh, Friday night, I was hanging out with some friends, and we played one of my favorite games, and that is, uh, who do you want to be the next Notre Dame football coach? <laughs> Although after Saturday, it's like, hey, you can stay for a while. It's cool. Uh, no, actually, I play this game a lot. Uh, who do you want to be the next head coach at Notre Dame? And once I, once I say me, I would like to, but then I move on to the real answers. Uh, I mean, the real answer is the guy from Washington. That's who I want. But anyways, you start to list out, what am I looking for in the next head coach at Notre Dame? And I think, well, okay, so he probably got accepted to Harvard, but didn't go there, right? He probably went to like Pitt, someplace that's tough. And then he's, he really understands how to design like this masterful passing game, but he never uses it. He always just runs the ball. And then he's also like really committed to the defense. And the, he's not a defensive coach, but the defense is going to be like nasty and mean, and they're going to be the best defense in the world. And he's going to be like really good looking, but also like doesn't know it right? He just, but he's really good with the media, but then he really engages young players really well. And then he's probably also going to have won like 10 national championships, but we can also afford him. <laughs> Basically, I want this guy. <laughs> I also realized this week that uh, this would have been a super dated reference had they not put out the sequel this week, so I'm glad Hollywood's running out of ideas because this made this worked much more. <clears throat> so I think it's a natural thing uh, when you're looking to replace a leader to look for Mr. Incredible uh, that checks every single box on your wish list. And I want us to like ask that question. When a leader leaves, what is it that we're looking for? That's what I want to hold us together today. That's the question that I want us to be mulling around what is it that we are looking for? We're in the middle of this series we're calling Now What? This week and next week are the last two of this. Uh, we've been watching the nation of Israel in the Old Testament move from slavery to the promised land and looking at the ways in which uh, Israel responds to this experience of being in between, the tension of transition and all of the things that that sort of brings up in our in our emotions and our, all the fears and anxieties and all of that. We watched uh, the, the story of the, the manna and the quail. We saw the pillar of smoke and the pillar of fire. We saw the Red Sea part. We saw all of these different things, and we watched Israel continue to pivot towards their uncertainty and their anxiety rather than trusting God in every step of the way. So in our story this morning, we've, we've followed Israel. They've actually gone all the way to the promised land. They've been there. They've, they've lived in the land. Uh, but we're going to get to this question about what they're looking for in a leader. What are they looking for in a leader? And the reason why I put that picture of that guy up there is that uh, what I'll say at the beginning is Israel is looking for Mr. Incredible. What I want to do is actually read the entire passage. It's not going to be on the screen. It's a little bit of an exercise for us to get used to listening to God's Word and to putting ourselves in the position of hearing it the way we, we would have heard it uh, when it was read uh, the first time. So I want to, I'm going to read 1 Samuel chapter 8, 
But I just invite you to kind of listen in a way that tries to put yourself in the position of Israel. They're in the promised land in encountering this uh, moment in their time together. So this is 1 Samuel chapter 8. Uh, when Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel. The name of his second was Abijah. He got, he got the shaft, didn't he? Joel, Abijah. Cool. Uh, they served at Beersheba, but his sons didn't follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together, and they came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, You're old, and your sons don't follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. When they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. And so he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, Listen to all the people are saying to you. It's not that you that they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day. And we've seen that time and again, haven't we? As they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, now they're doing it to you. So listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people. Yeah. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. And he said, This is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others will plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others will make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He'll take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He'll take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he'll take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. And when that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. It's kind of a lot there. There's really just three things I want to tease out from this passage today. And then I want us to consider maybe an alternative to doing what Israel does in this moment. Is that cool? not like we had a choice. I got three things. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't ask it like that. And the first thing is this idea that Israel says when they, they ask for this king, and, and do you hear, they said it twice, do you hear their motivation for it? It's in verse 5, which is going to be up on the screen here. They said, you're old and your sons don't follow your ways. Appoint us a king such as all the other nations have. Later on, they say, we want a king so we can be like all the other nations. You hear it? That motivation of wanting to, to be like everyone else. We want to be like all the other nations. Here's the thing. When you're not sure what you're doing, it's actually pretty natural to just do what everybody else is doing. You know what I mean? Did, you ever, did anybody watch the Great British Baking Show, or did you watch the Great British Baking Show? I love that show. 
Uh, my favorite part, generally, is that bit where they, in the middle, they do this technical challenge where they're given this uh, assignment. They've never had to bake this thing before, and their instructions are really poor. And so they've got to try and figure it out. So what I love about it is that first little bit where everyone is totally confused. And almost every episode, this starts to happen. People go, they look at whatever, like, what's that person doing? And then they just copycat each other all the way around the little baking tent, right? This right here, this craning your neck to see what the other person is doing, that's what Israel is feeling. We don't know what to do. Well, they got a king over there, right? It's that great British baking show move. Craning your neck to look around is about a human a response to now what as can be. But what I want to say to us this morning is that doing what everyone else is doing or trying to be like everyone else is just super harmful for the church. We talked about this a little bit last week, but this, this idea of copycat church, it's just like, oh, that worked over there. We should try that here. It's the same issue, trusting the program rather than the work of God in a particular place and time. But I want to dig into something just a little bit. Israel's motivation is not just to like copycat the program. They want a person to lead them because that's what everybody else has. They think that the person leading them is the thing that's blocking the moment. If that's what's creating their tension and anxiety. They don't have the leader everyone else has, but they're motivated by this idea that to, when we have a king, we'll fit in with all the other nations around us. It won't, we'll, we'll fit in. The word I want us to hold here is relevant. Relevant. Now, this is a really long conversation, but what I, what I would say is that when churches try to be relevant, that's the beginning of their downfall. When churches try to be relevant, this is the beginning of their downfall. And here's why I would say this. So one of my favorite theologians is a guy named Justo Gonzalez. Justo Gonzalez talks about the church as a manana people. Spanish-speaking folks in the room. Manana means what? Tomorrow. Isn't that kind of a weird sentence, right? To, to be the church is to be a tomorrow people. What's he mean by that? Well, what he means is that we are the people who understand what God is doing in the world, right? Because God has given us this, we know the story, and we know where the story ends. We know what one day will look like. If we had time, we'd read Revelation 21 and 22, and we would see the end of the story, where all of it is going. This is God's tomorrow, right? And to say that the church is a tomorrow people means that we live in the world today, with God's tomorrow in mind. If anyone is going to give expression to what God is going to do one day, it's us. It's our job as the church to put God's tomorrow out for everybody else to see. Does that make sense? This should be the place where people are being reconciled. This should be the place where lives are being transformed. This should be the place where brokenness is getting put back together because that's what God is going to do, right? At the very end of everything, God says, there will be no more crying or mourning or death or pain. Everything will be made new again. The church is the place where people get a taste of God's tomorrow now. The church is a manana people. So the idea then, this is why relevance is such a problem, 
Relevance is about today, right now, everything else. Our call is to put tomorrow on display now. My, my, I grew up in a kind of extended family of farmers. And uh, in, in farms downstate Illinois, I, mean, I don't know if it's like this here, but I think that it is, the farmers would have these things called demonstration plots. Anybody know what a demonstration plot is? So it's this little section of their field, it's usually right out by the road, where the farmer will experiment with a different kind of seed or a different kind of fertilizer or something like this. And they'll put the signs up of the, what they've planted here or, or the, 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 the thing that they've used as a way so people can, can go by and observe what this new technique is producing. This idea of like, if you like what you see here, you could do this at your field. That's really what we're talking about. The church then is like that demonstration plot of God's kingdom. Where the way that God works in the world is actually on display right here in this community. And if you like what you see here, guess what? You can experience that too. The church is a demonstration plot. But what that means is that the demonstration plot, that little space of ground, is actually different than everything else around it. If it's not, it's not demonstrating anything unique. It's not demonstrating what's supposed to be. If it just blends in with everything else, nobody's going to notice. The point is that the demonstration plot is set apart and unique. So I think it's interesting that as a church called Living Stones Church, that the, that the like clearest New Testament example of this idea that as the church we're supposed to be set apart to live a unique way of life, to live a life that shows everyone else around us what the God-shaped life should look like and what it is that God is doing comes right out of that passage in 1 Peter where Peter calls the church living stones. Let me read it to you. Maybe you don't know this. If you were to keep reading, Peter, after calling the, the church living stones, he says, here's why. Because you're a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You are God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness. In other words, he called you out of looking like everybody else and he called you into his wonderful light. One time you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And then he says, dear friends, as foreigners and exiles... That's not super like upper language to be foreigners and exiles. But you can't be like trying to fit in with everybody if that's who you are, right? Abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives in the world that though the world accuses you of doing wrong, that they would see your good deeds and glorify God in heaven. Anyways, I say all that to say that the calling of the church is not to fit in. It's actually to stand out. The calling of the church is not to fit in. It's to stand out, and to stand out in the most beautiful way possible so that everyone that sees it gets a glimpse of what it is that God is doing in the world. If they can't see it in us, where are they going to see it? You know what I mean? So when Israel says, hey, we want to... We want a king so we can be like everybody else. Well, they've lost it right there in that moment, haven't they? How can they be God's people in the world if they're like, well, we'd actually rather be like everybody else? 
They've forgotten their calling, the essence of what makes them the people of God. So if there are times when we feel like, hmm, what are they doing over there? We should just ask, maybe we don't need to, maybe we don't need to do what they're doing over there at that baking station. Maybe we can pay attention to what God is doing right here. So it keeps going. It goes all the way through, but then at the very end, after Samuel has warned them, they sort of double down on their request for a king. So they say this in verse 20. They say, no, we want a king over us. Why? Because we'll be like all the other nations with a king to lead us, to go before us, and to fight our battles. So, turns out they're not just craning in their necks. They're not just trying to fit in. They are trying to do that, but there's something else underneath it. This isn't just a question about relevance or not wanting to stick out or be different. They're afraid that without a king, they don't have anyone to lead them or to go before them or to fight their battles. And I sat and looked at it this week and I thought, what a weird three things to string together here in 1 Samuel given the stories we've looked at. Lead us, go before us, and fight our battles. In the story of Israel coming out of slavery and journeying to the promised land, who's been doing that thus far? In a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, Pharaoh's army is (laughs) swallowed up in the sea to lead us, to go before us, and to fight our battles. So they ask for a king to do the very things that God has been doing. That's why in verse 7, we don't have it on the screen, but that's why in verse 7, God says, listen, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Listen to what they're asking for. It's the second time they've done this. The second time they've tried to substitute something for God. They tried with the golden calf at Mount Sinai, and now they're trying to replace God again. This king, to them, relieves the tension of following a God who hasn't always been obviously present to them. And so they replace God with the request to have a human king. Placing our hope in a human rather than God is an incredibly easy thing to do. It's incredibly easy. We put ourselves in this position here right now at Living Stones. The thing is, like, I know that losing a leader puts an entire community and every person in it in a very uncertain space. I, I know that. Particularly somebody who has had the kind of impact that Sam has had on this church. There's an uncertainty that comes with that, and it creates all kinds of questions, and all of those questions are deep and meaningful and significant and important. Like, who's going to marry my kids? Or who's going to sit with me when my life falls apart? Who is it that's going to help me know more of God? Who's going to help us know where we're going as a church? All of those questions are real and significant. But mourning the loss of a leader doesn't have to result in what Israel does here, which is to take from God the things that God does, and to look to the next leader to do those things for them. 
Remember last week when we, we saw the people think that Moses had gone, and instead of electing Aaron as their leader, they asked for an idol? It's that same kind of move. The insecurity that comes with uncertainty will tempt us to put God-sized expectations on a human. So the permanent lead pastor of Living Stones, whoever that is, we probably don't even know them that. Here's what I would say. That permanent leader is not God. That person is not a substitute for God. And so we have to, we have to today hold on to the idea that it will only create problems if we put God-sized expectations on them. Whoever they are, they aren't a substitute for God. Putting those God-sized expectations on a leader, putting our hope that the next leader will take us to the promised land, whatever that is means to you, looking for a person who will lead us and go before us and fight our battles for us. Those are all ways of saying that we believe the insecurity that we feel in a moment of uncertainty can be relieved by a person. And that's just not true. So the first church I was a pastor at in New York, uh, they had gone through this long period of conflict and decline. Then they had gone through two years of like wilderness where um, they didn't have a pastor at all. Uh, they struggled. They sort of scuffled along looking for something. And when we showed up, there was this like refrain that came all the time. And it was, it was something along the lines of, well, now that Adam's here, now that Adam's here, now that Adam's here. So <clears throat> I'm not saying all that to bag on them. What I'm saying is, like, this is a church of people who were born and raised in, in the church. They built that building with their own hands. They had followed the Lord faithfully for 60, 70, 80, some 90 years. And it was that easy to say, now that Adam's here, all the tension is gone. All the uncertainty is gone. I was not gone. <laughs> and I demonstrated that pretty regularly, actually. <laughs> I'm not saying it to bag on them. I'm saying I've never witnessed a church in transition not fall prey to this temptation regularly. And I'm not saying any of that to shame anybody. I'm saying it's normal. We should expect it. But together, we can say we won't, we won't give in to that temptation to put God-sized expectations on a human. It's unhelpful, and it's really unhealthy in both directions. If a church were to collectively say, well, now that so-and-so is here, everything's going to be okay, and everybody takes a collective sigh of relief, what that means is that in, instead of continuing to lean into the tension, we've leaned back away from it. We talked about this the first week. Remember we, we, what we said about that transition space, what we said about the in-between? This is where we're going to put it to the test, if we really believe this or not. That God draws his people into in-between times so that we feel the tension of him at work in our midst. We are drawn out into the in-between so that God can remind us that he is with us and God is revealing himself to us. And so if we were to try to relieve the anxiety of the in-between by focusing on a human leader, 
It's ultimately a rejection of the entire point of being drawn into the in-between to begin with. Does that make sense? So it's not, it's not spiritually healthy for us to do that. But it's also not spiritually healthy for whoever that leader is. For a leader to know that all of the people have put these God-sized expectations on them is either going to just mount pressure on them or, well, when we ask, when we put God-sized expectations on a leader, sometimes we get exactly what we're asking for and not in a good way. This is what Samuel's trying to tell Israel. It's like, listen, you don't know what you're asking for. When you ask for a king so you can be like everybody else, when you ask for a king who will lead you and go before you and fight your battles for you, this is what you're asking for. I think we had this on the screen. Yeah? Verses 10 through 18. So hear this again. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. You want king to do all this for you, but guess what? He's going to take your sons and he's going to make them serve with his chariots and horses. They're going to run in front of his chariots. Meaning they're going to be the first ones to die. Some he'll assign to be commanders, but others are going to plow his ground and reap his harvest. Still others are going to make weapons of war and equipment. He'll take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He's going to take the best of your fields and your vineyards, your olive groves, and he's going to give them to his attendants. He'll take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants, your, your male servants and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys. He's going to take for his own use. Take a tenth of your flocks and ultimately you yourselves will become his slaves. So if you know the story of Israel and they're like, they hear all of this and they say, nope, we don't care. We want a king. So they get Saul. And Saul is Mr. Incredible. There's no way around it. He's a tall, handsome guy. He's a war hero, right? All the ladies love him. All the guys want to be him. Is that kind of a deal? Saul checks every box. He fits the pedigree. He's exactly what they want. They put all these expectations on him, and Saul does exactly this to them for his entire reign. The thing is, like, when you ask for a Mr. Incredible, you get that, and that's not always good. When we put God-sized expectations on a human leader, we should not be surprised when they try to play God. Human leaders do not bring salvation with them. But if we do that to a leader, if we put all those expectations on them, we shouldn't be surprised when that happens. There are plenty of examples these days in the news media of Christian leaders trying to play God in their churches. And how's that working out? When the power and the authority that belong to God are given to a human leader, it should not surprise us when that power and authority gets abused at the expense of the people. This is what Samuel's trying to tell Israel. Don't ask for a king. Don't ask for a king. Because if you do this, if you put all of your hopes and trust in a human person, if you put all the power and authority in that alpha dog type leader, you will get what you ask for and it will be your downfall. So, there it is, your daily dose of lighthearted encouragement <laughs> and inspiration. <laughs> so the question then is like, well, okay, Adam, what, what is the alternative to that? 
right? If we're not looking for the king to lead us, go before us, fight our battles for us, whatever, like what's the alternative there? Well, one of the things that I love about Scripture is how it all holds together. And there is this thing that happens in Scripture time and time again where when you come to encounter the person of Jesus, you encounter like the, the, the good, true, and beautiful version of what Israel had been scuffling along all around to find. Right? So the New Testament talks about Jesus as the true Adam, right? the one who didn't fail. Uh, Jesus talks, or the New Testament talks about Jesus as the true Israel, the, uh, the true older brother in the story of the prodigal son. He's the true prophet. He's the true priest. He's the true, guess what, king. I love the way that Scripture sort of pulls us in to seeing this. That, and I admit this is a little cheesy way to say it, that there is a true Mr. Incredible. And it is not found in whoever it is takes this job. It is given to us already in Jesus. Christ, the King. So I want you to hear how Paul writes about Jesus in Colossians. I think we have this on the screen too. And I want you to hear all of the, the kingship language that accompanies this. In all of this, like, search for a king who will lead us and go before us and fight our battles, this is what Paul says about Jesus. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. In him everything was created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Because God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now we don't need Mr. Incredible. We don't need a king to lead us and go before us and fight our battles to take this job because we have Jesus, who is the king, who has already done all of that. Listen to what this passage says. He's the firstborn over all creation, which is a title of authority. He is above all thrones and powers and rulers and authorities. He's before all things. Everything holds together in him. Gosh, what a, what a line. He's the head of the body, the church. In Jesus, everything is being reconciled. Everything is being put back together. Jesus is everything that we might be tempted to look for in a human leader. And we can trust him. We can trust him because Jesus is not a king that will abuse his position of kingship like Samuel warns Israel about. Jesus doesn't take what he can get. Power and authority are redefined in Jesus. Instead of taking things away, which is what Samuel says, Jesus is putting it back together. Instead of extending his power through the sacrifice of his people, he extends it by laying down his own life. Instead of demonstrating power through might and dominance, Jesus demonstrates power in weakness 
and submission to the Father. Leaders in a church that Jesus is king over, they don't rule with an iron fist. They don't rule with a heavy hand. They don't lead at the expense of the people. I love the way that Peter writes about it. He says, to the elders in your, in, among you, I appeal to you. Be shepherds of God's flock that's under your care, watching over them. Not because you must, but because you're willing. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, that is Jesus. When the true shepherd appears, you'll receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Anyways, I'd like for us to just speak plainly on this. The insecurity of uncertainty might tempt us to put our hopes in a human person, tempt us to look for a Mr. Incredible to lead us and go before us and fight our battles. But the good news, here's the good news, the thing we really want, we already have. The thing we really want, we already have. We have a king who has gone before us. We have a king who has won the battle. We have a king who leads us. And that may sound like a vague sort of spiritual notion, but everything we do in the church finds its meaning out of that reality. That Jesus is the king of God's kingdom and the head over his church, that has to be the orienting statement. If that's not the compass to our life together, we're missing it. So that's the question. In the uncertainty, are we just going to be like, well, what are they doing over there? Let's do what they're doing. Maybe if we had a human person who could go out and do all the things, right? I don't want to make light of the fact that there is an insecurity that comes when we are leaderless. I don't want to make light of that. What I want to invite us to do is to trust the fact that we aren't leaderless. That God is present to us in the in-between. And that we don't have to reject him in favor of a human leader. Sometimes I think we have to sort of speak our way into new ways of believing and living what's true. So I want us to, in, uh, to end this sermon by uh, speaking what is true. And to together then ask God to help us believe it. Okay? So I'm going to put a line up here on the, on the screen. You should take a minute and read it. I think if we really believed this, we would never feel the need to pivot to that human replacement. Take a minute and look at it. I am one in whom Christ dwells and delights, and I live in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God. Can we say that together? Like we believe it, even if we're having trouble. Let's read it together. I am one in whom Christ dwells and delights, and I live in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God. Amen? So we also need a little help sometimes. So we've got to say it to each other. All right? We'll put it back on the screen. Let's do the plural one, Alex. Okay. So we're going to say it to each other. So we can help each other in the, in the process. All right? Let's say it. We are those in whom Christ dwells and delights, and we live in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God. Amen? Let's pray.
God, we are those in whom you dwell and delight, and that ought to make us fall over. The reality that you live and delight in us is uh, sort of earth-shatteringly good news. And so we pray that as a church in the midst of transition where we might be tempted to look to face-to-face, flesh-and-blood answers to the problem, that we would believe what is most true, that we go out into the world who live as people who live in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God. Amen. Go ahead and stand, guys. We're going to worship with one more song. is our song of praise to you. Oh, our Lord and King, our praise to you we bring. There is no other rock but you. Yet I love you. You are the one we love. This is our song of praise to you. And King forever. You are the first and you're the last. You are sovereign and all your commands will always come to pass to give you glory. Oh, our Lord and King, I pray to you we bring. There is no other right but you. above you are the one we love this is our song of praise to you and who is like you who else is worthy of our praise we exalt you you reign in majesty and awesome splendor king forever Lord and King, I praise to you we bring. There is no other right but you. Yes, I love you. are the one we love. This is our song of praise to you. And Abba Father, your steadfast love will never fade. You are faithful, and you are God, and I will worship in your heart forever. Oh, our Lord and King, I praise to you we bring. There is no other rock but you. Seated above, you are the one we love. This is our song of praise to you. 
There is no other right but you. Be as I was. You are the one we love. This is our song of praise. This is our song of praise. This is our song of praise for you. your face melted this morning. (laughs) Psalm 146 says, do not put your trust in princes and human beings who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground, and on that day their plans turn to nothing. But blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. Amen? Let's say this one more time to each other. We are those in whom Christ dwells and delights. And we live in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God. As you go today, remember that we'll have folks up here to pray with you. We would love to journey with you even as we're wrestling with all of these things. We may say things very strongly, but we are all in process on all of this. So it's okay to be in process. We're all there. But these are the things we want to live into and believe together. Amen? Go in peace.